Well, we've talked about grace a lot this summer, and uh, part of the, the fear when you have a summer series entitled Summer of Grace, and as each, uh, each week we've kind of focused on that theme of grace, part of the fear that comes with that is that that word grace uh, just starts to become a little too familiar, because we hear it all summer, and every passage is about grace. And so for a moment this morning, I'm going to ask us to try our best to just suspend just our preconceived notions of grace. So forget your familiarity with it. Try to go back to maybe even the first time you heard it, to the first meaning that you remember of the word grace. And so let's, let's stop internally anyway, rolling our eyes at it, and let's allow that word grace to bring us to a place of of just brokenness and repentance this morning as we look at God's word and we see what it has to say about grace and how grace impacts our lives and influences us to live a life that is honoring and pleasing to Jesus. And so I'm going to ask you guys again just to, to pray quickly with me this morning that we would be able to fully grasp God's grace. Because the truth is, what I have to say this morning really isn't very important. Because it doesn't matter if I come up here and I speak to you in just eloquent terms and eloquent words, or if I come up here and stumble all over myself, it really doesn't matter. What matters is, will the Holy Spirit speak truth into our life this morning? Because that's a supernatural occurrence, that it doesn't matter how good of a job I do presenting information to you if the Holy Spirit doesn't move in our hearts and in our lives. And so we want to pray this morning, as Jesus often said, that we would have ears to hear, that what, what's being said really isn't as important as that we have hearts that are open to receive it. And so this morning, as we continue on this theme of grace, I'm going to just say a quick prayer for us and over us, that we would have ears to hear. So let's pray. God, we are grateful for today. And God, as we open your word and as we examine this theme of grace once again, God, I pray that we would, uh, that we would not have deaf ears. Jesus, I pray that your Holy Spirit would move in this place, that God, you would give each of us, God, myself included, ears to hear from your Spirit. That, God, you would bring brokenness and repentance. That, God, we would be reminded of the meaning behind that word. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. All right, let's talk about cheesecake. Does anybody like desserts? Desserts fans? Anybody? So, cheesecake. You know, I I liked cheesecake growing up. Cheesecake is, is good. I was always a little confused because it's really a pie, right? Like, Cake is fluffy, and this is not. And uh, when I think of cheese, my mind just immediately goes to like an orange block of cheddar, and that doesn't really fit with desserts and cake to me, so it's, it's kind of a weird name. But, you know, I would try it growing up, and cheesecake's good. I'm a dessert fan. I like cheesecake. Well, one day, um, a buddy of mine uh, named Robbie Crafton, he's over at Island Community Church, he took me to a place called Cheesecake Corner. Anybody been to Cheesecake Corner? Just quick raise of hands. Cheesecake Corner, who's familiar? Okay, Cheesecake Corner, I had never been there before. And uh, it's like my eyes were opened to this is what, this is cheesecake. Like I don't know what else I've been eating all these years, but it wasn't this. And I, I suddenly realized that I love cheesecake. 
And I, I love cheesecake from Cheesecake Corner so much that if, if you offer me any other desserts, any other options, so if you come and say, hey, Jared, we're going to go grab dessert, uh, we can go to Cheesecake Corner, or we can go to Muddy's. I'm choosing cheesecake. Hey, we're going to go grab dessert, we can go to Cheesecake Corner, or we can go get some ice cream. I'm choosing cheesecake. Like, suddenly, my eyes were opened to realize that cheesecake wasn't just okay. After experiencing it in this manner, it changed my desire for it. It changed my love for it. And we, we see that happen in our life. We, we see it happen where we suddenly we realize that, that, that this, what I thought it was, isn't what it is. This is what's true. This is the real experience. That it was better. And we see this happen, um, we see a, a similar thing happen with books and movies, right? So books and movies. So a lot of times if there's a popular book that comes out, it eventually gets adapted into a movie. And if you've, if you've read the book and you've seen the movie, what do people always say? Book's better. The book's better. We realize that there's, there's something better out there. That we, when we compare the two, there's something better. The book's better. Cheesecake Corner is better. So the, the big idea this morning that I want us to see is this. Grace teaches us that Jesus is better than all this world has to offer. Jesus is better than all this world has to offer. And we, when we experience the real Jesus, when we experience him, everything else pales in comparison. So just like in a, in a small way, when, when I experienced cheesecake from Cheesecake Corner, all of a sudden everything else just wasn't as good anymore. When we experience the real Jesus, everything else pales in comparison. And so that's what we're going to see this morning in this passage in Titus chapter 2. Uh, just a, a real quick background on the book of Titus, because I know we may not turn there too often. It's a short book. Uh, it is one of the Pauline letters, so it's written by Paul to Titus. And one of the themes that we see is this inseparable link between faith and practice, where what we say we believe is how we live our life, and that those two are inseparable. You can't say you believe one thing and just live life a completely different way. They're connected, what we say we believe and how we practice. And so it's written to Titus, who uh, Paul left behind at a church plant in Crete. The island of Crete is a, a large Greek island in the Mediterranean, and as was often Paul's strategy, he would go, he would plant a church, he would, see, he would raise up leaders in that church, and he would move on because he was a church planner. So he was always on the move, and he would leave behind people in these churches who would help shepherd and lead these churches. And so Titus was one of those who he left behind to help shepherd this church in Crete. And he writes this letter. He wants to do a couple of things. He, he writes to, one, rebuke false teachers. There were some false teachers who had come up in the church. He wanted to correct and rebuke. And he also wanted to paint a picture of what a healthy church is and what it looks like to follow Jesus with your life. And so in, the, in this context that we're in, chapter 2, if you look at verses 1 through 10, it's basically Paul's explanation of, of saying, here's what a godly life looks like. We're not going to go back and, and read that. You can read that if you'd like. But verses 1 through 10, Paul's answering that question. What does a godly life look like? And he lists out several things in that passage. And verse 11 through 14, he essentially is explaining what we just read together. He's explaining, okay, now that I've listed 
how to, how to live, I'm now going to show you, here's why we live that way. Here's how to do it. Here's how to do it. It's the foundation for all the Christian conduct in the previous verses, 1 through 10. So he doesn't just simply say in verses 1 through 10, hey, here's how you need to live. Now you just need to go do it. He gives us a motivation for it, a proper motivation. So that word for, at the beginning of uh, of verse 11, for, the grace of God has appeared. As we know, when you see the word for in Scripture, what are you supposed to ask? What's it there for? You see the word for, you always ask, what's it there for? So what is the context here? So the context is Paul writing, and he's saying, hey, here's how you should live. And now, in the passage we're going to focus on, he gives you the reason behind it. The reason behind it. And again, he doesn't just simply say, here's a list of rules, a list of do's and don'ts. Now you just need to follow it. Just just do it. He gives us a motivating factor. Here's how we say no to the world and yes to godliness. And and I want to recognize that, that no is a hard word to say. No is a hard word to say. And it's something that really as, as a culture and as a society, we almost need to be instructed in how to say it because it's an antisocial word. Does anybody have a hard time saying no? It's hard to say no sometimes. Some of you are shaking your head no right now. You don't have a problem with it. No, no can be a very hard word to say. It often doesn't come naturally to us. If you've ever been around a toddler, it, it used to come natural to us, a little too natural. Like that's one of the first words we learned. No, no. But as we, as we grow and as we grow up and develop social skills through time, it becomes difficult to say. And there's multiple reasons for that. We don't want to disappoint anybody, right? Anybody a people pleaser? We don't want to disappoint anyone. And so when someone asks us to do something, we feel obligated most times to say yes, because we feel like if we say no, someone's going to be disappointed in us. And we don't want to do that. We believe we can do it all. No matter how busy our our calendar is, no matter how full our agenda is, we believe that we can always add one more thing. So you can be busy, your week can be full. Someone asks you to do something, it's hard for you to say no. Even though when you look at your calendar and you look at the agenda that you already have, you're already trying to figure out how to fit everything in. So it's hard to say no. We fear conflict. The word no invites conflict. Because someone wants you to do something and you're saying, I'm not doing it. It's an avenue for conflict. It can be. We don't even like to say it. So a lot of times we give like nonverbal cues. So if you're ever at work and you're you know, busy, you're, you're typing away on your computer or you're busy with your hands working on something and someone comes into your office or comes up to you and says, hey, can, can, you, can you do this? You know, a lot of times instead of saying no, like we give these nonverbal cues to imply no. So it might be you know, something like... Or, um, or we might start listing like all the things that we're already doing. Well, I've, I've got a meeting at two, and then I've got this, and I've got that. You know, we, we just don't even like to say the word no. We try to give out these social cues so that whoever's asking can read into those social cues, and then they know that we're really saying no without saying no. So I recognize that, uh, that the word no is, is hard to say at times. It really goes against the tide, and we recognize that it needs a strong motivation. We need a strong motivation to say no 
even when we're called to say no to the things of this world. We need a strong motivation. And we read today that grace is a powerful motivator. It motivates powerfully. So the question we're going to answer today is this. How does grace train us to say no to the world and yes to godliness? How does grace train us to say no to the world and yes to godliness? And so there's going to be three three key points we're going to look at here to try to answer that question. One, grace tells us that Jesus wants you for his own possession. Jesus wants you for his own possession. Look at Titus 2.14. It says, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, who are zealous for good works. Jesus wants you for himself, for his own special treasure. Listen, God delights in you. God delights in you. And if you don't believe that, you can see it all throughout Scripture. Isaiah 62.4 says, my delight is in her. And Zephaniah 3.17 says, the Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. The creator of the universe who sustains everything sings over us. He sings over us. He delights in us. Listen, I sing over my kids sometimes, so I, I think I kind of know what this means. But I sing silly songs sometimes, so I made up a song for bedtime uh, when it's time to, uh, to get ready for bed. And so it's, it's really simple. It goes like this. It's time to pee-pee in the potty. Take a sip of water. Off to bed. It's really simple. But I don't, I don't sing it because it's a great song or because I'm a great songwriter, I sing it because it makes my kids smile. And they laugh about it. And then they sing it along with me, and it's just, it's, just, it's just silly. Like, it is. It's just silly. But I love to see my kids smile. And that, that brings my heart joy. It brings my heart delight to see them smile. And so just to, in that little way, like I, I feel like I understand this idea that God sings over us, that he delights in us. The creator of the universe who sustains everything sings over us. Isaiah 54 says, Though the mountains be shaken and the hills be removed, yet my unfailing love for you will not be shaken, nor my covenant of peace be removed, says the Lord who has compassion on you. And Ephesians 1.18, this is a powerful verse says, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people. So did did you catch that verse? Because it it essentially says that God considers himself rich because of his inheritance in his people, in you. The riches of his glorious inheritance in his people. We've walked through the book of Ephesians before, and it's all about identity and finding our identity in Christ. And one of the identifiers that we see is that we are his people and that he delights in his people. That you are approved and you are loved for those of us who are in Christ, who have the righteousness of Christ imputed onto us. We 
are God's workmanship and his children, and he delights in us, and his desire is for us. And there's, there's, there's an implication for that. And, and I think we can see it sometimes by simply asking this question, and, and I think it can reveal some of the, some of the just inner, inner thoughts or inner biases we might have about how we view God. And the question is this, is God pleased with you? Is God pleased with you? And if most of us are honest, we probably hesitate to answer that question because we know what our failures are. And we know the last time that we've sinned and we know the sin struggles that we just keep coming back to. And if we're truly honest, we feel like failures. And so it's hard for us to imagine that God would be pleased with us because we tend to believe, again, whether we will verbalize it or not, we tend to believe by our actions and our feelings in a works-based righteousness. Where if we can perform well enough, if we can follow all the rules, then God will be pleased with me. But if I break too many rules, then God's not going to be pleased. And he's just putting all of our actions and all of our all of the events of our life on this big cosmic scale, and we're just going to see kind of which way it tilts. Can our good deeds outweigh our bad deeds? Then God's pleased. And if our bad deeds outweigh our good deeds, then somehow he's not pleased. And the gospel says, grace says, that all of that's not true. Let me give you just two scenarios just to help illustrate this. So we're going to call this good Christian day and bad Christian day. So good Christian day, we wake up and what do we do in the morning? We immediately, uh, we don't go for our phone, we immediately, uh, we wake up early and we grab our Bible and we're reading through a CBR journal together as a church, right? So we're CBR journaling. Uh, we journal every passage because you got to journal to be a good Christian. And so we journal every passage and we spend time in prayer and we pray for our family and our loved ones and our friends and the lost. And then we, we get ready for our day. We love our family well that morning. We love our kids well. We're patient and we're kind. And we get up and we, we, get, we go off to work. And the work day, we spend time throughout the day, just little moments, just praying for our coworkers and looking for opportunities to even engage in some type of gospel conversation with our coworkers. We have a great day at work and we, we get off and we're coming home and, you know, Caleb's on the radio because it's good Christian day. And we're driving home and, you know, we have to stop and, We've, we've got to get gas on the way home. And so we stop at the gas station. And if, if you lived in Memphis any amount of time, at some point, someone's going to approach you at a gas station, right? For, for multiple reasons. But someone's going to approach you at a gas station. And, you know, they might ask for cash. They might be trying to sell you something. Somebody's going to approach you at a gas station. And uh, someone approaches you at a gas station, and they just say, hey, man, you got, you got, any, you got five bucks? Like, maybe they've got a story or, or whatever. But they, they want cash. And on Good Christian Day, you know, we believe as we enter into that conversation that God is going to bless this conversation, that I'm going to speak words of, of truth, of the gospel, and that God can use me in that moment. Well, let's, let's back up and experience Bad Christian Day. So Bad Christian Day, yeah, we set our alarm to try to get up early because we know that we're supposed to read the Bible when we get up, but 
it was a late night last night, and the alarm goes off, and I just really needed rest, and so I slept through the alarm, and I reset it, and so I didn't end up spending any time in the Word this morning, and I got ready to go, and my kids were just really crazy today, and I lost patience with them, and most of the morning was just spent yelling at my kids, do this, do that, no, 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 or breaking up fights between them, and I'm agitated before I even leave the house, and I go to work, and it seems like my coworkers always want more and more from me, and I'm underappreciated at work because I don't get paid enough to do all the things that I do. And finally, the day ends, and I'm just exhausted from having such a, a terrible day, and I go home, and again, I've got to stop for gas, and again, someone approaches me, and in that moment, I really have the same choices that I had in day one, Right? I've got the same choice in that moment. I can enter into and engage in a gospel conversation with someone and share the love of Christ. But on on Bad Christian Day, do we really believe that God's going to use us on that day? Like, we didn't read our Bible. We're supposed to. We didn't. We were mean to our family and our kids that morning. We were mean to coworkers. We didn't spend time thinking about gospel conversations or how to interact with our coworkers in a godly way throughout the day. In fact, we were, we were mean and rude to people. Like, is God really going to use me there? And we tend to, to view God as this eternally disappointed father figure, as someone who's always looking at bad Christian day and just kind of shaking his head like, oh, you can do better You can do better than that. The truth is, the truth that we see in Scripture and the truth that grace reveals to us is that God delights in you. He delights in you. And again, the the righteousness of Christ, for those of us who who are in Christ and believers, the righteousness of Christ is what God sees when he looks at you. So he's not this just disappointed father figure, always shaking his head in disgust, and you don't have to live in shame because of past choices. That God, and even on bad Christian day, God can still use you in that moment. God still desires to use you in that moment. No matter what you did that morning or that day, God desires to draw you close to himself. And that's not based on your performance during the day. So grace tells us that Jesus wants us and desires us and desires relationship with us. That he wants us for his own possession. The second thing that grace teaches us, grace tells us of the terrible price that was paid. Grace tells us of the terrible price that was paid. If you look at verse 14, it says, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us. Who gave himself for us. 1 Corinthians 6, verse 19 through 20 says, you are not your own for you were bought with a price. You are not your own. You were bought with a price. And so through grace, we can be reminded of the massive cost that was paid for our salvation. Isaiah 53, verse four through five, says, surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. Did you hear the words in that passage? He's borne our griefs, carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, 
He was pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. Isaiah 53 is for us. It paints a picture of how the suffering that Christ went through pays for our iniquities and our sin. And we should feel the weight of those words. And we should sense just in those words, underneath the weight of them, the wonder of what Christ did for us. The wonder that he would pay the penalty that was owed to us. If you remember Jesus in the garden back before Easter, we did just a, a quick three Sunday series uh, called The Cup, The Cross, and The Crown. And we looked at Jesus in the garden. And if you remember the prayer that Jesus prayed when he was in the garden, he said, if possible, may this cup be taken from me. If possible, may this cup be taken from me. And, and I want to just ask the question this morning, what was in the cup? When Jesus says, let this cup pass from me, what is he talking about? Because I think that we oftentimes think of just the, the physical agony of the crucifixion. And it was an agonizing death. And there's truth in that. But Jesus didn't simply experience physical pain. Because what happened on the cross wasn't just Jesus dying. What happened on the cross was God's wrath, all of God's wrath against the sins of the whole world, past, present, and future, being poured out on his son. And you hear it in his words when he's on the cross. He doesn't cry out in just physical pain. The words that he cries out are, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He doesn't cry cries of physical pain. He cries a cry of forsakenness, of being abandoned by the Father. There was a, a real forsakenness for our sake. And the judgment that was due us, that we deserve, was poured out on the Son instead of pouring it out on, on us. And that involved a kind of abandonment that Jesus felt on the cross and you hear it in his words, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Abandoned to suffer the weight of the sins of the world. And this is the cup that Jesus had to drink. And the implication here is a sobering reminder that grace isn't free. And we may say, in, in a sense, it's free to us as followers of Christ, but it, it really wasn't free. There was a price paid. Like God is a, a just God, so he doesn't just give things away freely. There's a price paid. The beauty of grace is that we didn't have to pay it, but it was paid. It was paid. Romans 6 says, Shall we go on sinning that grace may abound? No. How can we who died to sin still live in it? 
In the late 90s, a movie came out uh, called Saving Private Ryan. I think most people in here have probably seen it. It was a fairly popular movie at the time, but it's set during World War II, and um, the, the first 30 minutes of the movie are, are hard to watch. It, it's, a, it's a reenactment or a depiction of the storming of the beach at Normandy, and it's just, it's, it's very, you feel like you're there. I'll say that. You feel like you're there. And... It's the story of uh, this, this family, uh, his last name is Ryan, and there are four brothers who are enlisted in the military, and three of the brothers die that day. And the U.S. government decides that is too great a, a, a price to, to pay for an individual family, so we're going to find that fourth brother wherever he is. He landed somewhere behind enemy lines in Normandy. We want to think that he's alive. We need to go find him, and we need to bring him home. And so they set off. There's a, a small platoon of people. Uh, Tom Hanks is in the movie. He does an incredible job. But he, he leads a small team of people to go behind enemy lines and trying to find this private Ryan so that they can bring him home so that he can be with his family. And there's a, a lot happens between that and the end of the movie. But if you, if you fast forward to the end of the movie, eventually just about everyone who was involved in bringing him home ends up dying at the end or by the end. And to the, if you fast forward to the very end of the movie, it shows Private Ryan and he's standing in front of the grave of one of the men of the captain who, who literally gave his own life so, just so that he could go home and live a life. And he, he turns to his wife as, as an old man he turns to his wife and he asks her this question. Tell me I've lived a good life. Tell me I've lived a good life. And what you see there is that in the face of a great sacrifice, it is natural to examine the cost and respond accordingly. Private Ryan was motivated to live a life that was worth all of the sacrifice that it took just to get him home. And at the end of his life, he needs validation that he lived a life that was worth it. That he lived a life that was worth it. And so we see that as we look at the sacrifice of Christ, we are inclined to examine our lives in the face as we stand at the foot of the cross. And our lives can never be, be worth it in a sense. But we have to be inclined to look at our lives as we stand in the shadow of the cross and recognize that there has been a great price paid for the spiritual freedom that we enjoy. And so when Paul says, hey, we've got grace, so you know, should we just keep on sinning so that grace can, be, can, can abound? Like is sin just free now? Absolutely not. Look at the price that was paid for your freedom. How can you sit there and say that we just keep going on sinning? The grace may abound. Paul goes on and he says, Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. 
we might walk in newness of life, that we would shed the old self, that the old has died and passed away, that we walk in a newness of life as we walk following Christ in response to what he's done for us. So you can't just look at the cross of Christ at the price that was paid and just shrug your shoulders and say, yeah, I'm going to do my own thing. That's great, Jesus. Thanks for the grace. I'm glad it's free. I'm just going to go live life how I want to live life. We can't, you can't do that. Like I, I would strongly question your relationship with, with Christ if you feel like you can live that way. Because Scripture calls us to something else, and it says we, we can't do that. We can't do that. Grace doesn't come to, to lower the standard for us to look at the cross and say it just doesn't matter what we do. Grace comes to motivate us towards holiness. And as we look at the terrible price that was paid, we should be reminded of that. We should be motivated to live a life that is holy and pleasing to God. So grace reminds us of the terrible price. Lastly, grace tells us that this world will never satisfy us that this world will never satisfy us. Verse 12 in Titus chapter 2 says that, um, we'll look at 11 and 12, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. In this present age, there's a qualifier there for this age in the sense that it's, it's, just, it's just this present age. It's temporary that it doesn't last, that it's not our home. And you see that all through Scripture. Philippians 3 says, but our citizenship is in heaven. 1 Peter 2 says, beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles. That's what we're called. Hebrews 13 says, for here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. 1 John 2 says, this world is passing away along with its desires. All through Scripture, we see this idea that this world is not our home. It was never meant to satisfy us. And if you look for satisfaction here in the things that this world has to offer, you will always be disappointed. Even if you are happy for a moment or a season, it will never bring true contentment to you because the world is passing away. Its pleasures don't last. We weren't made for this. There's just an aching hole in the heart of men. Romans 8 describes it like this. All of creation is groaning for something more, something greater. And so if you want to know why you're not content in life, if you struggle with contentment or feeling like the world is never enough. Sometimes we have a tendency to believe that if we could just get that, that one more thing, whatever it is. If you could just get that raise, if you could just get that new car, if you could just get that new job, if you could just get that relationship or that marriage or that child or whatever it is, the list goes on and on. If we could just get that one thing, suddenly we'd be happy. Suddenly we'd be content in life. And what we've seen all throughout history is that one thing is never enough. You get that one thing and you may be content for a season. But eventually your contentment will run out and you're going to want something else. 
And you're going to see that the things that just this world has to offer, even though some of them are, are good things, that the contentment doesn't last. And so if you struggle with contentment, then I would ask, where are you looking for contentment? Where are you looking for contentment? Because if it's something in this world, if it's not Jesus, if that's not the answer, then I would say that you're always going to be looking for contentment. You will always be looking for contentment. Paul realized this in one of the more famous verses of the Bible And he says, I've learned the secret to contentment. I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. And we tend to take that out of context, right? Like athletes are putting it on their face, like thinking this means that I could win this football game because I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. Like really, Paul's saying, hey, I've I've learned the secret of how to survive through struggle and hardship and persecution because Jesus is the only thing that brings true contentment. So I can say goodbye to all the wonderful things of this world because I have Jesus who's better and who's greater than all those things. I can struggle through suffering because Jesus is better. Grace allows us to experience Jesus as the greatest joy and delight in this life. Matthew 13, 44 is a short parable. It says, The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field which a man found and covered up. And then in his joy, he goes and he sells all that he has and he buys that field. Grace trains us to find joy in pursuing godliness. That truly, Jesus is better. We sing that song sometimes, Jesus is better. But do we believe it? in our hearts and with our actions, do we actually believe that Jesus is better than all the things that this world has to offer? And you see it in that passage when the man, in his joy, he goes and he sells everything that he has because this treasure that's in this field is of such surpassing value. Is that how we view Jesus? I've got a quote from Tim Chester in his book, You Can Change, He says this, tell someone to stop sinning and at best they may do so reluctantly and partially, but give them a vision of knowing God and his glory and they'll gladly root out all that gets in the way of their relationship with God. Give them a vision of knowing God and his glory. And so there's there's a quick, uh, I think the next slide has just a, a simple diagram for what that looks like, a flow chart, if you will. So we have seeing God turns into delighting in God. Delighting in God turns into desiring God. And desiring God turns into desiring God more than we desire sin. And so as we see God, as we see the four G's that we talk about regularly, that God is great and glorious and good and gracious, as we see those things to be true, we delight in it. And when you see that God is that way, there's a natural delight. We taste and see, right? Taste and see that the Lord is good. Go back to the cheesecake example at the beginning. You know, you can tell me about cheesecake corner all you want, but until I I taste it and experience it, I don't understand what you're telling me. Taste and see that the Lord is good. As we delight in him, what we delight in, we desire. Where we find delight 
It naturally leads to desire. And as our desire for God grows, it grows greater than our sin desires. And so I've I've got just a little secret for you in case you didn't recognize this or know this. The secret is this. Listen, you always do whatever you want to do. People always do what they want to do. Like you, you do what you want to do. And you may argue with me and you say, Jared, that's, that's not true. Um, you know, I, I hate my job. I want to quit, but I don't quit. Well, that, that, may be, that may be true. You may hate your job. But the truth is, the more than you want to quit your job, you want to eat and you want to pay your bills and you want to not be evicted from your home. And so your, your desire, your want for those things outweighs your desire to quit your job. And so we always do what we want. Behind every action, there's always a want behind it. What are we desiring? What wants are we pursuing? Everyone always does what they want. So life is just this series of competing desires, this series of competing desires. And the world is constantly throwing more desires our way. Watch television for an hour, and there's, you're constantly bombarded with ads. Search for something on Google like one time, and then look at like your, your uh, social media page or, or whatever it is you look at. Like you're just bombarded with ads for this. Like you just search one time, and you didn't want to buy it. Somebody asked you about it, and you search for it. Next thing you know, I've got 50 ads trying to get me to purchase this item, and I don't even want. We are bombarded by desires by this world. And so... As we look at this, at this passage today, I, I pray that you see that God's calling in our lives is not just meant to be this, this simple system of rules where we do things and we don't do things and we just, need to keep to, we just need to keep the rules. God's desire is that we would grow so deeply in our knowledge of him that we would turn to desire him, that as that desire grows, that we would find contentment in him, that our our want to be with God and to know God outweighs the wants of this world so that we're still always doing what we want to do, but our, our want of knowing and pleasing and desiring God is greater than our want of sin. And if you've ever read the book, uh, You Can Change by Tim Chester, that's, that's basically it. That our, that our desire for God would outweigh our desire for the world. And grace trains us by showing us that, by showing us that we are God's treasured possession, that there was a terrible price paid, and finally, that this world is not our home. This world is not our home. I'm going to ask the the band to come back up, and I'm going to finish with uh, really quickly with just these three questions. Uh, there's three questions that I just want us to, to ponder. And if you want to, you can, if you, if you journal at all, if you want to write these down, you can go back to them at some point in the future. But the three questions are this, where in your life have you stopped pursuing holiness? Where in your life have you stopped pursuing holiness? And that can be big or small. A uh, quick story, just personal story. Caitlin and I are always having conversations and trying to figure out how to disciple our kids. And so, like, we're not always good at that, to just doing worship at home. And we bought these cards that walk through the fruits of the Spirit. We thought, this would be great. We can do it around the dinner table, and we can just have some spiritual conversations at the dinner table about fruits of the Spirit. I did it one time, guys. And my four-year-old looked at me halfway through it and said, this is boring. I haven't done it again since. 
because I'm afraid of my four-year-old that he's going to think that I'm boring. And so where, where have simple things along the way kept us and stopped us from truly pursuing holiness? How does grace call you to face your sin? And you and your are capitalized there for a reason because that, that's not a generic question. I, I want us to, to each look at our lives and try to answer that question for ourselves. How does grace call you to face your sin? And lastly, as, as simple, is your desire for Jesus greater than your desire for this world? Is your desire for Jesus greater than your desire for this world? We're gonna end our, our time this morning through a, a time of worship, through communion. And so if, if you're new with us, how we, how we share communion here, and the, the communion table is open for anyone who is a follower of Jesus, but we, we come down the middle aisle, and there will be communion servers up here, and you'll tear off a piece of bread, and you'll dip it in the juice cup. And you'll be reminded as you do that that this is the body of Christ broken for you, that this is the blood of Christ that was poured out for you. And so this morning, as, as, we, as we partake and as we, as we take and share in the Lord's Supper, I pray that we would just simply be reminded of God's grace towards us, that God's, God's grace and how it transforms our lives, how it gives us the ability to be able to see Jesus as being something that is beautiful and a greater desire than everything that this world offers. Pray with me.